0: Good morning. <laughs> Can you open your notes and see your own handwriting, but don't recognize it. <laughs> oops. Yes, hoops is right. <laughs> All right. So we'll be, as I mentioned at the beginning of the service, we'll be in John chapter four. We're starting the fourth chapter of the gospel of John this morning. As you look at it, you probably recognize it's actually quite long and there's a whole lot here. So it'll take us more than a couple of weeks to get all the way through this fourth chapter. And this morning, we're just going to look at these first 14 verses. In a sense, they are by themselves more than we can comprehend and absorb. And yet at the same time, they're almost just an introduction to everything else that happens in chapter four. So let's start by reading these first 14 verses. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour, or noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Lord, thank you for your word. We pray, Father, that as we Walk through these verses and walk through this whole chapter and this whole interaction with this woman and the people of her village between Jesus and them. That you would open up our eyes, Father, that our hearts and our minds would be strengthened and stirred to recognize the things you're calling us to this morning. The things you're saying to us through the words you spoke to this woman all those thousands of years ago. And Father, we pray that now the Holy Spirit would just completely indwell over in and through each and every one of us. Hearing exactly what we need to hear to understand where you're calling us to. Individually, as well as a church body. And we pray this, Father, knowing that you desire to give good gifts to your children. And believing that you will do this for us this morning. In Jesus' holy name, Amen. So like the first thing I start wrestling with in this passage is just what is Jesus doing here? I mean, these first four verses are like a swirl. Like this is going this way and this thing is going that way. And, all this, and it, what are you, Jesus, what are you doing? What are you doing here? I mean, first off, what is this about Jesus not baptizing people? there in verse two, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. You're going to go from where you are, which is in the hill country, of Judea, you know, about halfway between Jerusalem and Galilee or Cana and Nazareth. And you're going to go get out of here because you, the Pharisees have heard that you're baptizing more people than John and getting more disciples than John, the Baptist. And you're going to leave town because of that. What I don't, what the, Jesus is not somebody that runs from the Pharisees, right? He just doesn't do that. So what's going on? Well, part of the answer to that question is to recognize something that occurs multiple times throughout the gospel of John and in the other gospels as well. Places where there's these moments of conflict and everybody's ready to kill Jesus, but he just sort of just walks away and everybody's like, where did he go? I don't know. I thought you had him. No, I thought you had him. Well, then who had him? I don't know who had him, but nobody's got him now. He's gone. And the reason is because it was not his time. right? And he's leaving the area to avoid another conflict with the Pharisees because now is not the time for him to have another conflict with them. That is coming in the future. Multiple times. But now it's time for something different. And that's why he's moving towards Galilee and away from Jerusalem. And this whole thing about him baptizing, but he's not baptizing. I mean, yeah, he's baptizing more disciples, but it's the disciples who are doing the baptizing. Jesus himself is not really baptizing. Okay, thanks, John. Appreciate that extra little bit there, but so what? Why is that? Important to know that Jesus isn't actually baptizing people he 's not actually dunking anybody under the water. Why does that matter? Well there's not a absolute clear explanation for this. okay We have to notice to you that this is sort of drawing an inference from other things he's going to say later and other things he's going to do later. but I fall into the category of other theologians who say that. The reason Jesus wasn't actually physically baptizing people was because he only wanted to baptize with the Holy Spirit. And as a result, he let the disciples do the physical baptizing of immersion and waited until he could give something of truly great value, something of much greater value than getting dunked under the water by Jesus. And that's getting completely overwashed With the Holy Spirit. And then. What's this whole thing about him having to go through. Samaria. Why does Jesus have to go through Samaria. I mean there's lots of different ways. To get from Jerusalem to Nazareth. Well there's not lots. But there's a couple of different ways to go. And most Jews don't go through Samaria. They take a different route. To avoid the Samaritans altogether. So why does Jesus have to go there. Well. Oftentimes, people would take that route because they needed to get there quickly. That was the fastest route from Jerusalem to the Galilean region, especially if you were going into the areas of Cana Nazareth and Jezreel, those sections of Galilee. The fastest way to get there from Jerusalem was straight through Samaria. And if you're really in a hurry, that's the way you went. Oh, so Jesus was in a hurry. That's why he wanted to get there. He needed to get there quickly. So that's why he went through the Samaria No, because we find out down here in verse 43 of chapter 4 that he stayed for two whole days in this little village of Sychar with the Samaritans. Well, if he's in such a hurry to get to Galilee, why does he hang out in Sychar for two whole days after this event with the woman at the well? It's not speed that draws Jesus to Samaria. It was not for him getting there faster he has to go to Samaria because this is part of his mission to bring salvation to the Samaritans themselves. That's why he has to go there. His father is sending him there. And as we see throughout the Gospels and throughout the book of Acts, where the Lord sends his people for the purpose of bringing the good news of salvation, he goes ahead of through the power of the Spirit and prepares those who are to receive it and hear it and we see this starting in verse 5 with this samaritan woman well we really see it starting in verse 6 when he and her begin to interact but verse 5 we start to understand this idea that brings out john starts to bring out this idea that the samaritans are different they're not like the jews they're different one of the things that makes them very significantly different was the samaritans only held to the torah the first five books of the old testament They believe those to be authentically, divinely given by God, inspired by him and the word of God. But everything else in the Old Testament, they didn't. They didn't hold to it. They didn't hold to the. They didn't believe in. They didn't. Look, Isaiah. I mean, this is this is mind boggling for us. The Samaritans did not hold any value in the book of Isaiah. Well, yeah, it's it's interesting reading and there's some nice stuff in there and some hopeful stuff. But it's not authoritative. It's not from God. That's just a man talking. That's the way they looked at the book of Isaiah. That's the way they looked at Ezekiel and Jeremiah. I mean, this is almost impossible for us to comprehend as believers who read and believe in the whole Bible. But they just didn't. They rejected the prophets and the wisdom literature as anything given by God. And so if you wanted to convince somebody from a Samaritan of something that God has said, you got to find it in the Torah. You've got to find it in the first five books of the Old Testament. And that becomes very significant in a minute. And because they only believed in the Torah, Samaritans could at times be more pious and more perfectly practicing the law than even some of the Jews because they didn't hold to some of the other writings. And so they, they really were honed in on those five books really hard. And as a result, sometimes they were more pious than some Jews. And they could even be, as in the case of this woman, more serious about how they ostracized people who did not follow Mosaic law precisely, at least the way they thought it should be followed. The other thing that's significant about the Samaritans, is, in part because of only holding the Torah, the Samaritans see the Messiah as he would be a great teacher. And we see that brought out by what the woman responds to Jesus later on when somewhere around verse 20, uh, when she says to him, we know that when the Messiah comes, he will explain all things. That's because they see the, the Messiah as a great teacher, someone who will explain the law perfectly, but would also restore the ideals of the Mosaic law. In their mind, somehow the practicing of the Mosaic law took on, okay, not exactly, but almost like a metaphysical kind of experience that somehow you became more holy and that by the Messiah's presence, when he came, he would fulfill the ideal of all of that in the Mosaic law. And because they rejected the prophetic writings in the old Testament, if Jesus wants to prove to them, he's the Messiah, he's got to do it from the first five books of the Bible He cannot point to any of the things we commonly think of as messianic prophecies to justify his messiahship. And as we read through this chapter, we'll see that the way Jesus interacts with him, he basically just gives his testimony. I'm the Messiah. Believe it or not, accept it or not. My testimony is good enough. Which is something John the Baptist said in chapter three. And now we see this playing out with the Samaritans here in chapter four. And then starting here in verse six, we finally get to the woman at the well. I've laid out a long, a lot of stuff here, but these understandings of how the Samaritans saw the world and how they saw the Messiah and how they saw the Old Testament is crucial to understanding why Jesus interacts with this woman the way he does. Because when you read Jesus interacting with this woman and the Samaritans in the village of it's just not the way he talks to everybody else. He talks to them differently. And the reason is, is because they just they only held to the Torah. So he's meeting them where they are. As he comes to them. So then we come to this actual interaction between Jesus and the woman at the well. It's Noontime as Jesus arrives and we see there that it says in verse six that Jesus was wearied as he was from his journey sitting beside the well. Okay, that little bit is just color commentary by John. He's not just sort of like, you know, filling in some fluff here to make things interesting. This is Jesus being very human. If he's going to come to this earth and he's going to experience things the way we experience them and and understands our weaknesses, he has to have the human experience of exhaustion, of weariness, of it's hot and I'm tired and I'm thirsty. And I'm sitting here at this well in the middle of the day with no shade, waiting for a chance to get a drink of water. And then we read how the disciples have gone into the village to buy food. And Jesus is there. What? It Always struck me as odd. Why did nobody stay with Jesus? Right? I mean, there's a bunch of them. There's at least 12. And there's probably a lot more than 12 walking with Jesus as they come through Samaria. And nobody wants to stay with Jesus. Everybody wants to go into the village and buy food. That just seems so strange to me. That Jesus is there by himself. But that's because... This Jesus being there by himself is part of God's divine appointment for Jesus, not just with this woman, but with the Samaritans themselves. And as we walk through these next several verses, you'll start to understand why Jesus sitting at this well at noontime by himself was so critical for the Samaritans to receive him. But before we even get to that, we've got this barrier-busting Jesus at the well. He breaks no more than three gigantic barriers in that society and culture with this interaction with this woman. The first barrier that he breaks is the ethnic barrier between the Jews and the Samaritans. It's really difficult for us to grasp the animosity that existed between Jews and Samaritans at this moment in Palestine history. And in Jewish history and even the conflict between modern day Israelis and the Palestinians isn't it is somewhat of a of a model. But it's not the same even then, even that way, because the Palestinians hold no belief system whatsoever that's similar to Judaism and the Samaritans at least held to the Torah. And I haven't found a a good analogy to pair up with the Jews and the Samaritans to help us in modern day grasp the, the conflict between them. But it was just huge. I mean, Jews would literally take an extra day's journey and add an extra 15 to 20 miles to their journey going from Galilee to Jerusalem just to avoid going through Samaria and dealing with Samaritans. That's how much they disliked each other. And Samaritans were very hostile to Jews when Jews traveled through Samaria. And Jesus is going. And I mentioned this earlier in the, in the middle of chapter three. Despite all this, Jesus just doesn't seem intimidated at all by the idea of going into Samaria. Despite all this animosity, despite the sort of unpleasant experience he's probably going to have as a Jew walking through Samaria. And he just bust right through that barrier. Just says to her, please give me a drink of water. Well, give me a drink of water. Don't want to add words to his mouth, but a modern Jesus would have said, please, wouldn't he? Yeah, that was supposed to be funny. You were supposed to laugh. Yeah. Then he burst the gender barrier by a man talking to a woman in a public setting. Okay, this just took me so long to wrap my head around. Okay, so for Jews guys did not speak to women in public settings because it somehow conveyed a level of intimacy that was inappropriate what that just doesn't make any sense for us right but that's the way they saw it they were so concerned about sexual immorality and that you you didn't have conversations with females in public because that could indicate a level of intimacy that was inappropriate, and like what i don 't okay, if you say so, but that just doesn 't make any sense to us, but that was the mindset the world they lived in, and for some Samaritans, remember I said because they only had the Torah, they could actually be more pious for some Samaritans, they were even more hardcore about this men and women talking in public than the Jews. I mean, it was almost like you were guilty of adultery just by saying hi. That's how serious they took this. I mean, that's how hard they pushed this idea of men and women talking in public. And Jesus speaks to her. This Jewish man speaks to this Samaritan woman in a public setting. Are you kidding me? Jesus, have you lost your mind? Do you not have any sense of propriety here? No, he does not. Because he don't care about your fake social rules. I call them fake because he says they're fake. He busts through that barrier. He does not care that it's a social sin for him to talk to this woman because he was sent by the father to talk to this woman and the father's mission takes precedent over the social faux pas and then maybe the biggest barrier of all I mean you would think the ethnic and the gender barriers by themselves would be enough but maybe the biggest barrier of all was the moral barrier for this particular woman with her soiled past I and mean, you can almost hear the disdain in some people's voices. Well, if Jesus knew who this woman was, he wouldn't be talking to her. We find out later in the passage of her many marriages, five different husbands, and she's currently living with a guy that she's not married to. Well, that didn't go over well in Samaria. Matter of fact, John strains at the bolts to even make this plain by pointing out that she comes by herself to the well at noon. Many of you have probably studied and heard about this passage before where people didn't come to the well in the middle of the day. It's too stinking hot. You come early in the day or you come late in the day when it's cooler and get water from the well. And that's when the majority of the women would come to the well in the morning and the evening. But she was so socially outcast that she wouldn't even come then. She's coming at the hottest, most brutal part of the day to walk from the village out to the well and draw water and carry it back to the village just so that she can avoid all the other women. Now think about that for a second, especially you females in the room. Think about that kind of loneliness, that kind of isolation. She was so Just cast it away that she would rather be alone than deal with the issues of talking with other women and being around them. But this doesn't bother Jesus. He just busts through this barrier like he's driving a big one ton truck through the trees. He just doesn't care. Jesus was on mission. And here's the other thing, especially as we walk further and further through this chapter, there is nothing in this conversation that's about to happen that catches Jesus by surprise. It's not like they're having this conversation and go, oop, I didn't expect that. No, he knew what was going to happen before it happened. And what's really stunning? I mean, Jesus busting all these barriers by itself is enough to explode your brain. God chooses this woman to be a missionary. She is God's chosen instrument to bring the message of the Messiah to her people. The woman that they have most rejected is the one that Jesus and God the Father have exalted to a place of significant prominence She is the messenger of the Messiah's arrival to them. Now we start to see the, as I say, bring up so often the upside down nature of the gospel on display in the story. I mean, just think about this. You can almost imagine how this would go over with the disciples if Jesus and God, the father had decided to let them in on the plan. good. He says we're going to Samaria and we're actually going to bring the hope of the Messiah to the to them. Are you kidding me? Did, Peter, did he really say that? I mean, first off, they're going to be opposed to this whole idea of going to Samaria and bringing salvation to the Samaritans. And then you're going to announce your arrival to these Samaritan dogs and you're going to use that woman as your messenger to announce your arrival to the Samaritans? What have you been smoking? Are you seriously thinking about doing this, Jesus? This is how crazy and how upside down it is what Jesus and God the Father are doing in this moment. I sometimes think that he actually doesn't tell the disciples what he's going to do just because it's so crazy they would try and stop him. And I'm absolutely convinced that if he would told them what he was going to do, that they would have all stayed at the well to try and stop him. That nobody would have gone into town. Because it's just that insanely stupid to do this. This way. Funny thing, God seems to have a habit. He seems to have this habit of doing what we think is stupid to accomplish his purposes. The upside down nature of the gospel. Okay. You break in all the barriers, you're just like you're choosing this woman, while wow, to be your announcing messenger to the tell the Samaritans that you have come. I mean, we're even here I mean, even that we're in Samaria to begin with is crazy enough, and now you're doing it with this woman. And then he starts in on this whole subject of living water in verse ten. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that was saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The Old Testament is just rich with so many beautiful places of of this idea of living water and God being a source of living water. Multiple places throughout the Old Testament. And of the most significant are Ezekiel chapter 47 and Zechariah chapter 14. And we will deal with those when we get to John chapter 7. But we can't talk about Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Zachariah's use of this subject of living water because for the Samaritans, Ezekiel, Zachariah, and the other prophets that talk about living water would have been meaningless. They don't believe them. For them, those guys were as irrelevant as the Apocrypha and the Gnostic Gospels are to you and me. So Jesus has to stick to key figures and whales from Genesis While talking with this woman, and he will display to her that he is greater than Jacob or Moses. And this is one of the ways he does it. Remember, I said that it was God's divine purpose for Jesus to be there at this well at noon by himself? Well, you want to get the Samaritans' attention? Let's turn to Genesis chapter 29. I'm just going to read the first 14 verses. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. And he looked and he saw a whale in the field. And behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that whale, the flocks were watered. The stone on the whale's mouth was large. And when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the whale and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the whale. Jacob said to them, my brothers, where do you come from? They said, we are from Haran. He said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, We know him. He said to them, Is it well with him? And they said, It is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it is still high day, or around noon. It is time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. And while he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. And now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the whale's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud, and Jacob told Rachel that he was her father kinsman, and that he was Rebecca's son, meaning Laban's sister, Rebecca. And she ran and told her father. And as soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob and his sister, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him into his house. And Jacob told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with them, with him a month. Maybe you don't catch this right away. Whose well is Jesus sitting at? Jacob's well, Who is held so highly in the people of Sychar's view? And this woman, Jacob. And what does Jacob do? He's the one that provides the living water to everyone by rolling away the stone. And Rachel is the one who goes and tells her family of Jacob's arrival. And they all come to meet him and take him into their home. Do you see the parallel starting to match up between Jesus and Jacob here? And as we read later on in John chapter four, the people of Samaria, because of her witness and testimony to them, as she goes back into the village, come out to the well and meet Jesus. And they bring him into the village. He stays for two more days. They receive him joyfully and listen to him eagerly. But that's not all. We also need to look at Exodus chapter 2. I'll just read a very short passage here from Exodus chapter 2, just verses 15 through 20. Now, when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to, Moses had killed this Egyptian. He sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to the water, their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood and saved them and watered their flock. And when they came home to their father, Ruul, he said, how is it that you've come home so soon? And they said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. And he said to his daughters, well, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. See the parallels between Moses and the well in Midian? He comes. He provides water, giving water from the well, the life-giving water. And now here's Jesus making the case here in John chapter 4 to this woman that he is greater than Jacob or Moses. Because they drew just regular old water from the well. And he's here to give them water of eternal life. Just as Jacob and Moses, Jesus is there to give this woman life-giving water. Only he is offering the living water of the Holy Spirit. And how do I know that? Because he says that to us in John chapter seven, verses 38 and 39, that the living water he's promising to give to people that wells up from within them and flows forth as a spring of well of living water is the Holy Spirit. John states it explicitly there. So he's offering the Holy Spirit to these Samaritans and to this woman. And all of this is just the beginning of this story. I know I've spent this whole time laying out what's going on here and we haven't even gotten into the meat of the story yet. The heart of what happens. This is just overwhelming. There. He is doing this. He's breaking all these barriers and he's giving living. He's giving, he's offering the Holy Spirit to the stinking Samaritans. I thought the first three barriers were big enough, but no, Jesus isn't satisfied with busting those three barriers. He has to go all the way and break the biggest barrier that exists, the one that prevents Fellowship with God by extending the Holy Spirit to these people. Okay. Well, all right. That's really nice. This is good. But so what? So what? I mean, what do I mean? So what? When I go home and eat a sandwich, so what? Jesus intentionally goes to those he is seeking to save. Over and over in the Gospels, Jesus goes to the people he is seeking to save. He doesn't wait for them to come to him. He goes to them. And we can have confidence that when we are giving the Gospel to someone, that Jesus has already been there preparing their heart, just as he was preparing this woman's heart. we have living water of the Holy Spirit continually flowing from within us, it can never run dry. Think about that for a moment. The wellspring, the spring of life that gives living water, the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, never runs dry. It never ends. Does that really match our experiences on a daily basis? I don't know about you, but some days it feels like this well, this Holy Spirit well has gone dry. But why? If it can't go dry, why does it feel like it has? Maybe it's because I'm distracted. Maybe it's because I'm forgetting what's important. My experience has been that when there's a break in fellowship between me and the father. There's usually a good reason. There's something I need to get cleaned up. Which is really ironic because I can't clean it up to begin with. The only person that can clean it up and restore the fellowship that I had with the father is, is the spirit himself. And it's like he's just waiting for me to recognize Gosh, you know, it's been a couple of days. How much longer are you going to go before you realize there's something we need to talk about? And here's maybe the most uncomfortable of all the so what's from this passage. Is there a place or a person where pride and prejudice is preventing you from seeing them as redeemable? Now, of course, none of us would ever out loud say that we see somebody as unredeemable. But I'm not talking about the things you say out loud. I'm talking about the things on the inside that you don't ever say out loud. You know, the things that you really believe. Is there anybody you see as unredeemable? Jesus can't save them. Or if he does, I don't want to have anything to do with it. Ooh. Did I just say that out loud? If Jesus wants to save them, that's great, but I don't want to have any part of that. Are we willing to violate social norms or ethnic barriers to offer the love of Jesus to another? Now, it's easy to sit here and say that this morning right here, but it's a whole different thing when you actually step outside this building and into their world. Like Jesus, like you know, Jesus went to the Samaritan world to bring salvation. If He's going to call us to do something like that, we're probably going to have to go to where they are, which means we got to go to their place. Well, that's not—I don't want to go there. Look, I have no desire to go to downtown Denver. I just don't want to be there. I don't want to deal with the traffic. I don't want to deal with the attitudes. But if that's where they are, then that's where I'm going to have to go. It's going to have to be uncomfortable. Am I willing to bust those barriers? And actually, the reality is, here's the sad part. Not the sad part. I guess it's the good part. I ain't got to bust no barrier. I just got to walk through the barrier he's already busted. Maybe that's the sad part. He's already busted the barrier, and I just don't have the desire to walk through it. But then somebody did that for me. I mean most of you would have not really enjoyed the rural southern culture that I'd grew up in. You would not have enjoyed coming into that culture to try and share the gospel with me. But someone did. And if see this is the part I keep forgetting. Somebody did that for me, but now I'm too good to do it for them, for somebody else. How did I become so so fantastic that I'm unworthy of lowering myself to such things as that? It sounds more like a Pharisee than Jesus. Are you willing to violate social norms or ethnic barriers to offer the love of Jesus to another? Oh, and when I talk about the social norms, like the ethnic barriers, that's a little easier to figure out, right? Like, am I willing to go to that section of Denver and share gospel with that race of people? The social norms, that's a little more abstract, a little more vague, right? What am I going to do if, the person that Lord has placed in front of me and Amy to witness to is a stripper. Am I going to do that? What it, I mean, just, just pick the most unpleasant person you can imagine and are you going to risk your reputation to tell them about Jesus? I mean, he didn't really seem to care too much about what anybody thought when he just went barreling right into Samaria and saying all these things. Where are you going to go? I I don't know where you're going to go, what you're going to do. I have a hard enough time figuring out what I'm going to do with these uncomfortable ideas. What I hope is that I have finally given myself to the Lord Jesus and to the Holy Spirit in such a way that I'll take a couple of deep breaths maybe a couple more deep breaths and walk through the barriers that he's already busted open because I'm, you know, I'm pretty sure I wasn't that great, that pleasant of a person to interact with before I came to faith in Jesus. Even though I came to faith in Jesus at a very young age, I probably had a bit of an attitude. But yet there were people who just patiently, lovingly shared the gospel with me anyway. Does that sound familiar? So we can do it. I can do this. I can do this because the spirit is already at work and the people he's calling me to and he's already broken down the barriers there. I just need to walk through them and I just need to get over myself and do this. In the way that he's calling me to do it, in the way that he's calling you to do it. I can imagine, I mean, in my mind, as I prepared these words, I was thinking to myself, uh, I could actually picture individuals that some of you have told me about. That this is exactly who Jesus is trying to get to through you. I'm trying hard not to look at anybody. but I can hear you say their name. I appreciate the struggle that is right. Because I got it too. But I'm not Jesus. It's easy to say, well, if Jesus could do this, I can do this. Well, I'm not Jesus. I'm not even Peter. But he doesn't ask. He doesn't call where he doesn't equip. He doesn't provide where he doesn't send. I say that right? Anyway, if he's calling you to go someplace and do something, he's already at work preparing the way. That's why we can do this. That's why I can do this. That's why you can do it. No, it won't necessarily be fun. but it will be a moment to experience the joy of living water flowing through us and out of us and that is worth it let's pray lord you are you are the life-giving fountain you're you're the one that does all this and, and i'm just just human and frail and would rather not mess with it but i trust you i trust you in these difficult unpleasant circumstances that so many of us are walking in right now and i trust you with where it is you're calling us to go to as individuals and as a church and i just just pray father that you would just continue to to instill in us the confidence and the belief in you and your word and the power of your holy spirit to work in us and to work in those you send us to and i pray lord that in ways we can't even understand or imagine that that this this church body would become one gigantic waterfall Of living water and that it would bring life giving water to all of Castle Rock, to the entire front range, and by things that in ways that we could never understand or comprehend, even to the entire world. Because if you could use this woman to bring your salvation to this village of Syker. You can use us to bring your salvation to anybody. In Jesus' holy name we ask it. Amen.